from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 6th. Today, who Trump is putting at risk, choosing between feeding the hungry and having a business, and how NBA players got political. Over the past few days, we've seen the president seem to flout safety protocols. I mean, he's he's done it before, but now he's an active COVID patient roaming throughout the world. I'm Jada Yuan, and I'm a features writer covering politics for the style section. On Sunday, while he was hospitalized at Walter Reed, he got into a motorcade with several Secret Service agents in a completely sealed car and did what some have called a joyride to wave to his supporters who were gathered outside the medical center. And yeah, there's an outcry on behalf of the Secret Service who are being put in harm's way because they're locked in this car with an active COVID patient. The thing is that the Secret Service are public facing. You can see them in pictures and get upset about what's happening. But there's also the residence staff who are really the tenants of the White House. They're the people who go in there and work every day and keep the house running, the housekeepers, the butlers, the ushers, the florists. And when the president got released from Walter Reed on Monday, among the first things he did was walk up the steps, get on a balcony and take off his mask for a photo op. And, you know, that immediately raises concerns about what what is he doing inside the house to protect the people that work there from this virus that he's bringing into their world. And, you know, when we talk about the coronavirus outbreak in the White House and the people who have either gotten it already or are at risk of getting it. We think about White House staffers as like the people who work with the president, like the press secretary, but really the the residential staff. I mean, those people are the people who are often in just as close contact with the president or in the same rooms with him and are often overlooked when we think about the people who are immediately around the president. Yeah, that's right. There's a difference between the political staff who are the West Wing folks that you sort of see running around with the president, Kaylee McEnany and Kellyanne Conway, and the residence staff, who are the people who take care of the house. He also has valets, people who work very closely with him, who travel with him and make sure that he has food when he wants it and beverages when he wants them. Um, Mm -hmm. There are all these people who work very closely with them. And in May, we found out that one of his personnel valets tested positive for coronavirus. We do not have any update on the status of that person's health. Just recently, we found out that several weeks ago, two members of the residence staff also tested positive for coronavirus. And the New York Times reported that they were two housekeepers and they'd been asked to use discretion when speaking about their coronavirus diagnosis. So nothing was publicly announced that these resident staffers had coronavirus. And and when we think of the, the staff, the resident staff of the White House, who are these people and, and who what do they largely look like? The resident staff are, are largely Black, Latino, and Filipino. 
And because they're in career positions, they are often elderly. Many of the Butler staff are over the age of 50. And they are already an at-risk population. And now they're at further risk within the White House because there are two active COVID patients, one of whom seems to be taking off his mask whenever he wants to. And the real concern is that there aren't protocols in place to protect them from from their workplace becoming a hotspot, basically. And what has the White House said about this situation that they're putting people in, both when it comes to the resident staff and also when it comes to the Secret Service, the people who, because of their jobs, have to be in the room with the president even when he's sick? I mean, the White House is saying that every possible precaution is being taken, but they will not be specific about what those precautions are. Um, So the White House has said that in consultation with the White House Medical Unit, all precautions are being taken to take care of the residents' staff. But they won't talk to us about whether there have been mask protocols put in place for anyone walking through the residence who isn't already a resident staff person. If you look at that Rose Garden event, the nominating announcement for Amy Coney Barrett, we know now that 11 people were infected from that event. And if you are standing in that Rose Garden and you look to your left, you see the West Wing. You look in front of you, you see the residence, which is where the first family lives and where they have the tours. And then you see the East Wing to your right, which is where the First Lady's offices are. Um, And there are different protocols for safety throughout all of those parts of the the house. You know, we know that in the East Wing, people are wearing masks. We know that in the residence, the staff is wearing masks, but anyone who passes through there, and often White House staffers are passing through there, is not wearing masks. And in, in the West Wing, it's sort of a wild west where who knows what protocols are being followed, but there there aren't that many. You know, what is transpiring right now at the White House feels like in some ways a a very weird microcosm of what's happening in the entire country, where people who work in the service industry are both the people who are trying to take the most precautions, but are also in a situation where they have to take risks by just showing up to their jobs and in many cases are being put at risk by the people that they are working for or, or providing services to. The White House has been very bad about letting their staffers know when they are at risk. We know from staffers that many of them found out that the president and the first lady were infected just by watching news reports. The first guidance to staffers telling them, you know, if you're sick, stay home or ask your supervisor about teleworking went out on Sunday, which was three days after the public learned that the president was sick. So. There really aren't a lot of protections in place for the people who have to come into work in that building and have no choice but to be exposed. They can't speak up, you know, especially the resident staff can't speak up because discretion is part of their job. They have top secret clearances. These are career positions. If they leave, they risk losing their pension. So they can't speak up, but they have to go to work. And they want to go to work. These are people who are dedicated to protecting the first family, whoever that first family is, and protecting the White House and maintaining the White House. And they're sort of in the same line of 
grocery store clerks, people who take pride in their jobs, but are seeing that the people who are entering into their orbit aren't taking precautions to protect their safety in return. Jada Yuan is a features reporter who covers national politics. So before the pandemic, it was really just like this kind of fun, chaotic, always crowded spot in the little downtown in this college town. You know, there was always like tons of fresh baked pies of all these different exotic flavors, regular ones like coconut cream. But then they had, you know, blueberry with basil. It's it's a sour cream custard with fresh blackberries and um, brown sugar oat crumble. Okay, and it's named for who? It's named for Duchess Goldblatt who is a Twitter persona that I follow. Okay. And she sort of is like the patron saint of literary types. Oh. Lady Bird Diner is a small diner in Lawrence, Kansas. It's a small space, but it was decorated like an old-fashioned diner with the stools and everything. And there was a big buffalo head on the wall with a crown of sunflowers, which is the state flower of Kansas. So it was a very fun place to be in. You know, had, had a kind of a electric atmosphere. My name is Annie Gowan. I am the Midwest correspondent for The Washington Post. And tell me about who owns this diner. It's owned by a consortium of people, but the public face of the diner is Meg Hereford. She's 46 years old, and she is sort of this force of nature personality. She has kiki blonde hair and tats up her arms, and she wears these coveralls that are 50s era, you know, in, in keeping with the diner's design ethos. And she's just a very sunny, always-on kind of person. And they call her Mama Meg because she... She always takes care of everyone, and she's a Kansas native. There's a gourmet, sort of more upscale, local farm-to-table restaurant nearby, and so she'd been working there, and the the day that she made her pie for them, she made just a simple cream pie, and it sold out in an hour. So the owner of that restaurant, who's one of her partners, decided, like, okay, we need to find a place where Meg can make her pies full-time. So they they founded the Ladybird Diner, which opened in 2014. And and for Meg, what does this diner represent or what did she want to achieve with with this diner? Well, initially, you know, she wanted it to be the experience of the old fashioned diners. And also, as she would say, like the experience that you feel when you're sort of sitting in your kitchen watching your crazy aunt cook a meal for you. So she wanted to have the feeling of a diner, but also more of a family feeling as well. In addition to the pies, she also had, you know, recipes on the menu that were from her grandma. Her granny had a farm in Kansas and she used to make chicken and noodles and just take the chicken right out of the yard and chop its head off. And so that was, was, there's a dish inspired by that. Although, of course, the chickens are not from the yard. But um, so that was her, what she, (laughs) that was the inspiration. So how did things start to change for Meg and for this diner at the beginning of the pandemic? You know, when the pandemic occurred, it was actually the last day that they were opened was actually Pi Day, which is actually like a famous, I guess I would say holiday for people that... It's March 14th, right? It's like 3.14. Yeah. So it's like the pie symbol in mathematics. And then people like reserve pies way in ahead of time. So it's kind of like a national holiday for pies as well. So 
you know, there were tons of people in the diner and it was at the time when things were just really getting bad and she just was in a panic because she didn't know how she was going to keep everyone safe. So they closed and then, you know, there was sort of this weekend of soul searching and then that Monday they decided to reopen to sort of distribute to sack lunches to folks who were hungry. School, I think at that time, had said that they were extending spring break maybe by a week or something. Or I can't remember. They hadn't pulled the plug yet on the whole year. They had said two, two extra weeks. Right. So I immediately was thinking, like, well, there aren't, that means they're not going to be doing school lunches, right, during that time. And I knew that we were going to close. So I had already said that we were going to do free sack lunches starting on Monday because I, I, I knew that we would not be open anymore. I could just already feel it that it was yeah. not going to be manageable um, and that we were going to be sitting on a lot of food. And initially it was just sort of like, okay, let's use up our stores and donations from other restaurants. But then it it sort of took on a life of its own and it became this own sort of sack lunch feeding program. And then, you know, they've they've since fed like 15,000 lunches. Wow. And why was there such an urgent need for that? Well, so in this particular town, they have a homeless population, which is growing It's also a college town. So like a quarter of the people who were laid off were from the service economy. So, you know, initially, of course, the numbers are much lower now, but initially there were 9,000 people that were out of work. So there was a lot of need almost overnight. So so what is the scene like outside this diner now that they are essentially a, a food bank or providing free food? So the little downtown in Lawrence, it's got this sort of college flavor with little boutiques and small restaurants. So every uh, weekday now in the in this one block, you know, they have a line for the Ladybird Diner Sack Lunches. Um, initially, some of the homeless people in town show up. There's families and others who are who are sort of not used to kind of how, you know, feeding programs work and sometimes they hang back a little bit. So it's really kind of transformed the sort of the lunchtime atmosphere in this downtown. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. She'll be on a hijack Harley when she comes. She'll be on a hijack Harley when she comes. One of the guys who always comes is named Jerry, and he's a local musician, and he plays the harmonica. And he's kind of a well-known figure on the local music scene, and he sometimes busts downtown. So anyway, he comes and always comes for his lunch, and every day he gives Meg a serenade. She's got two staffers who volunteer their time to help her, so they all come out to listen in a socially distanced way, of course. (laughs) So obviously things were closed down in Kansas at the beginning of the pandemic, but how did the, the situation evolve in terms of who was allowed to be open and whether restaurants like Meg's were allowed to be open? Yeah, so it's been kind of a fluid situation because... They, there was a reopening, there was a phased reopening, and then she, she could have sort of reopened in as early as May. And then, of course, be, this being a college town, now the college students have returned, and so they have li- put more limits on restaurants. I mean, just in Meg's little downtown alone, you know, a third of the restaurants were still closed 
and then they're slowly, slowly reopening or they're slowly, slowly closing. So everybody's trying to find a model that would work. So then tell me about what this decision is that Meg was trying to grapple with. And when she was looking at the situation, like what were the different scenarios that she was envisioning? Well, it was really complicated because it's kind of a small space. So she tried and tried to figure out a way that they could have reopened with social distancing guidelines in place. And the place was too small for that. Starting on Friday, I just started to think of what I what I want the business to do, like how I want it to serve the community. So she could have done takeout, which is what a lot of restaurants have been doing. What do I want to bring that uh, that is unique and and you know worth doing? And so I feel like for us, a big part of that is serving as a resource for folks who need something to eat. And we've always done that. And then what about all these folks? And then one morning it rained and the skies cleared. It was sunny. Uh huh. Yeah. And he was just standing out in the sunshine just beyond the patio rail. Uh Singing the way he does, like... (laughs) Uh His little swaying. And Jerry serenaded her with the song I Can See Clearly Now, which is a 70s song. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. <laughs> Were you dancing like you did today? Um, I don't think so. I think I was really just enjoying letting it wash over me. Uh-huh. Like this really bittersweet moment of like, I cannot see clearly Jerry. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jerry, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jerry would probably be a great therapist if I wanted to. And she says at that moment, she decided, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to keep taking care of these hungry people. And, and what was it like for her going through that decision-making process? Well, I think it was really hard because the restaurant is her family's bread and butter. You know, she's married to a songwriter and they have a very simple lifestyle. So that was the economic driver for her family. I think everybody in their heart would kind of like things to be back to normal. So back to normal for Lady Bird Diner would be open. She would watch these people line up every day and realize that, you know, I can't leave them because they need me. I mean, there was one day I was there that it was after a holiday and, you know, they had, there were people in line that hadn't had anything to eat over the three-day holiday weekend. So it was kind of like they were pushing, pushing forward for the food. And I think it was really an eye-opener for her about, you know, what the need level is. And and so is that it for the diner for the foreseeable future? Is she on board with this is no longer going to be a restaurant? This is going to be a place where we provide free food for people who need it? Well, I think that she was saying goodbye to the diner as it was. But I mean, of course, there's always a chance, right, that for a lot of these places that when there's a vaccine and they can go back to business as usual, that things would return. But for now, you know, she's kind of mourning the loss of the diner as it was. But it was a huge leap of faith. She decided to temporarily shut 
down for August because she has, she was putting together a book of essays into like a fundraising book. And so now they've sold like $20,000 worth of books. So now she has some wow. uh, seed money to continue on. And and does she have a sense of like how sustainable this is going forward? How much time that money can buy her and, and what the plan is to keep this going in perpetuity? So she'd like to eventually reopen a little market so that there's a market there so people can get fresh vegetables and then maybe take little prepared pieces of pie away. So eventually that's where she's headed, that there'll be some kind of hybrid. But again, as I say, I think it's just interesting because it's in keeping with what everybody else is doing around the country. Like in the downtown where she is, they've taken away parking spaces so that everyone can eat outside. But it's all very uncertain because what's going to happen when it gets cold? I think that's also why I find Meg's story so interesting, because it feels like in so many ways across the country, people are trying to get back to normal or waiting this out until there is an opportunity to get back to normal and to return to this like idyllic image of what we had before, you know, whether that is a like bustling diner or otherwise. But I think it takes a lot of courage to recognize that like normal doesn't exist anymore and normal probably won't look the same in the future and that the sooner that you recognize that the needs are different, the realities are different and will remain different for many years to come, you know, the sooner that you can make the best decisions. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why Meg's story is a bit universal because I think everybody's trying to debate and having an inner debate about, okay, what do I want my life to look like after all this is over? I mean, everyone's life is not going to be the same when things get back going again. And so her debate just happened to play out a lot more publicly than, than everyone else. Annie Gowan is the Midwest correspondent for The Post. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing. That November um, is right around the corner, and it's, and it's a big moment for us as Americans. Um, if um, we, we continue to talk about what we want, you know, better, uh, we want change, uh, uh, we have an opportunity to do that, so. The NBA players are just making this unprecedented push for voting. It's something that we did not see in 2016, not from this league, not from any other league. My name is Candace Buckner, and I write about race, gender, and diversity issues in the world of sports. In 2016, we had what everyone was saying, a historical election. In the NBA, of the eligible men 
only 22% voted. Now, take into account that the NBA is a very international league, so there are a lot of people who are not from America, not eligible to vote. However, that was still a woeful number, but on a grander scale, people like them who did not vote, young people like them who did not vote, black men like themselves who did not vote, and they saw the result of their lack of participation, they decided to do something about that in 2020. So the stories about NBA players deciding to to get off the sideline and join this push to uh, to make a change in 2020. I think we feel most powerful when there's strength in, in numbers. Right. A lot of people, you know, echoing the same exact message. It, you know, it's just amplified so much more. So I talked to this um, young player named Mohammed Bamba. He goes by Mo Bamba. He is not only registered to vote, he's also volunteering to be a poll worker. The majority of the people who work at these uh, these stations are well over 60 years of age. Right. And to me, you know, they're, they're at risk. And I also talked to Harrison Barnes, who is uh, originally from Iowa. Man, I mean, to be athlete in 2020 is to realize and to use your voice. You know, it's not simply enough for me to sit idly by and watch this, but to talk and promote issues that are relevant to me and relevant to my community and, and things that I see as unfair. He plays for the Sacramento Kings and his team, they've actually been in this voting space for longer than any team in the NBA, and that's only two years, but around the midterms. And also their arena will be a super polling place. I believe 22 of the 30 arenas in the NBA will be used for election day purposes. Now, just weeks into the election, the NBA Players Association can claim some success. Union President Chris Paul says more than 90% of the league of, of the eligible voters are now registered to vote. And of course, the more than a vote coalition that's led by LeBron James, it's garnered over 10,000 volunteers to work as poll workers. Now, as far as the players impact in the general public, no one will know that until after the election. But so far, they can say they've done their part. Candace Buckner is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The news is moving really fast right now. Between a pandemic, an election, an upcoming confirmation of a Supreme Court justice, and a president who is sick with COVID, there is a lot to keep up with. That's why we're offering a subscription to The Post for our listeners for just $29 a year. Find the link in our show notes or go to postreports.com offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 